Good afternoon. Uh, good to see all of you. Um, I know that we have a lot of people on vacation, but it seems like there's a lot of people here, so we got a lot of visitors. So hopefully you can, if you're, if you normally go to Zoe, maybe try to meet someone you don't know. Just try to be friendly, you know, be welcoming. Um, if you're new, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, after service, we have some refreshments and we like to fellowship afterwards in the fellowship area in the atrium. So please stick around just for a little bit. We just would like to greet you. No pressure. You don't have to stay or something. You don't have to sign up for anything. Uh, we just want to meet you uh, and hopefully um, just welcome you uh, in a gracious way. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if you're new, um, we are going through a book, uh, the book of Jude. And it's only one chapter long, but we've been in Jude for like, I don't know, three months, something like that, uh, which is honestly a little too fast for my taste, um, but we felt like we needed to keep the flow of the book. And today we're actually finishing, okay? So we've called this series Once for All. If you don't know, the reason we called it that is because early on in the letter, Jude says that the reason he wrote this epistle, this letter to the churches that he's writing to is because he felt it was necessary to call them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is a body of sound doctrine. There are right beliefs that the church has been given from Jesus, from God, through the apostles, through the prophets. But Jude felt like some people were strained from that, that there are people who were actively pushing against that. So he wanted to encourage and even command the people of the church to fight for the faith. Now, today we've reached the end. So let's go to our text if you're not there. Jude 24 and 25. Jude, I guess, 1, 24 through 25. Let me read, and then I'll pray for a time, and then we'll get into it. I know we have the kids here, um, so uh, I'll try to make it a little briefer. Okay, so that means under an hour. All right, so Jude 24. Jude 24 through 25. This might be the most famous passage in Jude. Jude ends his letter by saying, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we pray simply that you would speak through your word this afternoon. God, we know your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word can cut even to our hearts. And God, I know that all of us bring different things to church today, God, different distractions, baggage, things that are on our hearts and on our minds. God, I pray that you would use your word to do in us what only you can do. God, that you would build us up, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would transform us, and maybe for even some of us, that you would save us. God, we look to you and you alone during this time. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been underwhelmed? Maybe someone hyped up a restaurant or, you know, a movie or maybe like a purple drink for you, and it was just eh, right? It wasn't that good. Maybe you hiked up to a scenic view and it was cloudy and not that great and you wondered why everyone was raving about it. Or how about this? Have you ever been underwhelmed by Jesus? I know we took a sharp turn there. 
Maybe you're here because someone told you about how life-changing church can be or the gospel or the Bible. So you visited, you're around, you've been coming out every Sunday, you've been trying to read the Bible for yourself, and yet it's not really doing much, it seems. Maybe people tell you about how blown away they were in their quiet time reading a passage. It's the, the craziest passage of all time. But you read it and it was it was fine, but it was just fine. Want to know someone who knew a thing or two about being underwhelmed by Jesus? He's the guy who wrote the letter we're finishing today. Turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to revisit this person, the author of this epistle, <clears throat> this epistle Jude. Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> Second book of the New Testament, Mark 6. Look at verse 1. I'll give you a, a moment to turn there. I hear some pages turning. Mark 6, verse 1. Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus' biggest doubters were not the Romans, they weren't the Samaritans, but the people he grew up with in Nazareth, the people from his hometown, even the members, he says, of his own household. Now, turn back to Mark chapter 3. Mark, Mark 3, just a couple chapters before this. This was earlier, right after Jesus called his 12 disciples, but this incident helps us to understand how his brothers, how his family, his biological family, at least on his mother's side, were responding to him. He was preaching like no one had ever preached. He was teaching as no one had ever taught. He was performing signs and wonders, miracles. And now he was drawing these huge crowds. Look at Mark 3, verse 20. It says, Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He must be crazy to be leaning into this. What is going on? For 30 years, he had been hanging out in small town Nazareth, learning the family trade, a humble nobody in the world's eyes. And now all of a sudden, he's blowing up in Israel. Crowds are gathering to see him, and he's turning the world upside down. A quote-unquote unlearned carpenter who was calling disciples to himself as if he were a rabbi, but the proof was in the pudding. He was somehow greater than every rabbi, and it was crazy to watch. People were amazed. If you read the Gospels, you see certain things. Fathers were begging him to heal their children. Roman centurions called him Lord. Even the rich and powerful in society fell down at his feet and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? These are the kind of questions people are asking Jesus. And yet still, even after everything he did, he still had haters and enemies, those who were jealous, those who doubted, and some who simply were underwhelmed by him. Some saw what he did with their own two eyes, and yet they didn't believe. As John 7, 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. James, 
and Joseph, Judas, and Simon, his four brothers. And the connection might be easy to overlook because he doesn't get a lot of screen time, you could say, in the Gospels. But do you know that in the Greek text, the first word text, the first word of our epistle to Jude, or of Jude, excuse me, is Yodas, Judas in Greek. Jude's actual name is Judas, and maybe if you know the story of Jesus and his betrayal, you know why he doesn't go by his full name, kind of the obvious reason. It's like why someone might go by Dolph instead of Adolf. Judas short for Judas. His brother, his third brother, most likely in the order of names, is Jude. Jude didn't believe. None of the brothers did. And so on the cross, if you remember the story, Jesus looked not to any of his brothers, but to John, his disciple, the son of Zebedee, and asked him to take care of his mother. And the assumption is, the presumption is, the implication is that none of them were even there. Jesus Christ went to the cross. His mother was there. None of his brothers showed up. And let me ask you, have you ever been underwhelmed by Jesus? Now, okay, to be fair, you're here. That's pretty good. None of us, I don't think, would call Jesus out of his mind. I think most of us would even say that we believe on some level. But the truth is, we all go through seasons of dryness and discouragement and discontentment, right? Even the most committed of us, there are days and weeks, months even, where the scriptures seem more drudgery than delight, where prayer is more of a chore than comfort. We kind of know what it's like, even if we have believed, to see the things that Jesus does, to read the scriptures week in and week out, maybe every morning, every day, and yet come away fundamentally, realistically, on the ground, unchanged by it. And maybe you're here on a Sunday at worship which is good, but your heart doesn't fire like it should be. All these things, all this input, you're hearing the very word of God. You're singing direct praise to who he is, about who he is, and yet there's something cold here, something indifferent, something underwhelming. The scripture we read a few minutes ago, Jude 24 through 25, is one of the greatest doxologies in the entire Bible. Jude speaks of God's power, his glory, his majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ in all of eternity. And yet I read it out loud. Did these sentences even register at all? Did these magisterial concepts move you in any substantial way? Did reading the very word of God cause us to lift our gaze heavenward? Or are we preoccupied with a million other things? Not that we disagree, but that we're distracted. Kind of like when you're talking to somebody and they're checking their phone and they're like, yeah, keep going. I'm listening. I'm listening. But they're just scrolling or typing something and you're trying to share something. But you know that they're not really paying attention I know I've done it myself, right? I say, go on, keep talking. I can hear you. I can multitask. But really, I'm thinking about my stocks or my plans for dinner or how much my elbow hurts or my work or some drama I have with a family member. These things, I'm not saying if you think about these things, it's sinful. Some of these things you should think about. But you knows that if there's one thing at the center of Christianity that we need sometimes, it's to stop and look up. 
and consider the God of glory. We need to see Jesus for who he is. If we're underwhelmed, it's not because Jesus is underwhelming. It's because we're just not paying attention, maybe. We're not seeing it. We're seeing, we just do not see. We do not perceive. Take it from someone who didn't always see it. This is where and how Jude wants to conclude. He wants to give us a vision of Jesus Christ. Now, a little context before we jump into it in earnest. Jude 24 through 25 is probably, like I said, the most well-known passage in this book. Uh, it's the part of Jude that's read the most, often at the end of church services. And you probably heard it here at Zoe at some point if you've been around for a while. We always end our service with a benediction, right? We get up here, the pastor gets up here and, you know, says, receive the benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you and says whatever I say from numbers or wherever it might be. Jude 24 through 25 isn't actually a benediction, not truly, not technically. It's something similar. It's what's called a doxology. Okay, doxa in Greek, it's the word for glory. So it's literally a word or words of glory. So when we come up here at the end of service and we give a benediction, benediction means blessing. What we're doing is we're giving a blessing to the congregation, not from us, but from God, a blessing to the church. When we give a doxology at the end, which sometimes we do, the blessing isn't directed toward you. The directing is, uh, the blessing is directed toward God. It's worship. Jude chooses to end his letter with a doxology with worship. And, you know, Jude has generally written a serious letter. If you've been here every week, you know, we said it. It's kind of a downer. It's very serious. It's complex. It might be the craziest book in the Bible. He initially wanted to write a friendly letter about the commonalities that he had with his readers in Christ, but instead he felt compelled to write a letter of warning. He felt like the church was being corrupted from the inside out, from the top down, from the leaders, from people who had crept in and had influence. He warned that people were there for the wrong motives and for the wrong reasons and that judgment was coming. I mean, we kept saying it. Jude is a bit of a downer even. But here at the end, instead of last minute instructions, one more warning, instead of saying goodbye or giving some personal greetings or whatever it might be, what Jude does instead of leading us down or or making things more practical, what he does is he shoots us to the stratosphere. He wants to leave us with the one thing we might overlook at the end of a letter like this, a vision of God. And what we're going to see is that there's nothing more encouraging, nothing more convicting, nothing more essential for a life of faith than this one thing. It doesn't matter if you've been around church for decades or if you're pretty new. Jude wants to overwhelm us with the sheer reality of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And he explicitly writes the three things to focus on. And we'll do this hopefully quicker than normal. First point. He wants to point us to, he wants us to focus on his ability. God's ability, which should give us hope. Verse 24. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the focus isn't on us. You see that? It's not on the false teachers either. It's not on the church and definitely not on Jude. The focus is on him and how he is able. And the word for able here comes from the Greek word dunamis. It means power. A lot of people like to illustrate this by saying that our English word dynamite 
comes from dunamis. But that's a little misleading because when you think about dynamite, you think about something exploding. You think about kind of explosive power or destructive power. That's not really what dunamis is about. It's just about ability. It's about literal power. See, when you have the ability to do something, that means that you have the power to do it. When you're unable, it means you don't have the power. What dunamis is about is the raw ability to do what you want to do. This is what power is in the real world. If you think about it, the most powerful people on earth, they can do whatever they want. They can break the law. They can shortcut all the lines that we normally have to wait in. A king, let's say, he's not limited by the words of his boss. He doesn't have a boss. He's the boss. He can be late and people will have to wait for him and then apologize when he gets there. When he says he wants to go somewhere, his driver or his pilot or whoever is waiting for him to take him there. He's not constrained. He's not bound. He is able to do what he wants. And God is the king of kings and he is able to do whatever he wants. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All, underline it. That'll preach on its own, but Jude isn't focusing on generalities. He's specifically talking about God's ability to do two things. He is able to preserve us and he is able to present us. First, preserve us. If you look at the text, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The word for stumbling here is a very rare Greek word. It means more falling, okay, than just kind of losing your step. Some people stumble and then they catch themselves. Some people stumble and then they fall all the way and they eat it, so to speak. That's what he's talking about, the latter. God is able to preserve us, to keep us from eating it, from taking a spill that causes our face to hit the ground. And this applies to us as individuals. He is able to preserve our faith and keep us till the end. And this is encouraging because Christian, who among us hasn't struggled in some way? Struggle with a sin that just keeps showing its ugly head every couple of months or throughout your life. Struggle to find meaningful community. Some of us have been bouncing around for years. Some of us struggle with doubt as Pastor Eric talked about last week. But this also applies corporately to all of us. Judas saying that Jesus is able That God is able to keep the church from failing. No matter what kind of attacks Christianity faces from without or from within, no matter how many wolves infiltrate the fold, no matter how many sheep wander, the church will not fall. God is able to preserve us. God is able to present us. Look at the text. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The word for blameless here has to do with a lack of blame. Deep, I know. Uh, there's more to it than that. It's more without blemish. You can think about it that way. It's a callback to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle and then the temple and that the way, and the way that you would make atonement for your sins was you would bring an animal to sacrifice. The priest would kill it and offer that sacrifice for you on your behalf. The blood would be a payment for your sins. The animal that you offered, whether it was a goat or an ox or a bird or whatever, it had to be perfect, spotless, without defect. That's what it's talking about right here. God can present us to himself in the end blameless. Now here's a little plug for our theological foundations class. That's going to begin next week. 
Better get started on working on that. This is the doctrine of justification right here. One of the issues at the heart of the Reformation, justification, the only blameless sacrifice, the only truly perfect and without blemish sacrifice that has ever existed is Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We cannot be blameless on our own. All of us are sinners and our sins are stains that we can't remove by our own good works, by saying sorry, by trying to make up for it. We can't do it on our own. But Jesus Christ died for our justification. And what this means is Jesus lived the blameless life we could not, and then he died in our place. And by faith, we receive his righteousness. It's called substitutionary atonement. I know we're getting theological, but I figure the kids are here, so it's got to do it. Substitutionary atonement. See, in the courtroom of God's justice, the way it is, is we are guilty and Jesus is innocent. We are unrighteous. Jesus is righteous. But what Jesus did by dying on the cross was he took our place. He is our substitute in atonement. So by faith, what happens is God views us as if we were Jesus, as if we were righteous. His righteousness is credited to us by faith. And on the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins. He knew no sin, and yet he bore our sins. This is how salvation works. This is what it means when we say that Jesus died for us. It's never about how good we are. We can't be good enough. It's all about what Jesus did. And this is how we can be presented before God without having to fear. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament, a famous story uh, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And this is at the beginning or toward the beginning of the book. And Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. But before he was called to his ministry of prophecy, he had a vision of God. God actually allowed him to see him. And this is what he writes. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. He sees God high and lifted up, and there are angels around him, seraphim. These aren't the cute little, like, cherub, you know, like Cupid kind of things that you see in some old art. The seraphim are, uh, respectfully, kind of freaky creatures. Seraphim, it, it literally means burning ones. They're, they're on fire. They're like living flame. And they have six wings. And with two of their wings, they cover their face. Now, you, I read Isaiah 6. He says, one of them spoke and it shook the foundations of the temple. If you've been to Israel, if you've seen pictures, the foundation of the temple, these huge, like, megaton rocks. One of these seraphs, spoke and it shook the temple. And yet the seraphim, they cover their eyes because they don't want to gaze directly upon God. It's just not something that they could do consistently. It's like looking at the sun. Isaiah, a sinful human being, doesn't even stand a chance. This is why what he says immediately upon entering God's presence makes a lot of sense. He says, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am lost. Woe is me. And don't think of like a fair maiden from the 1800s saying, you know, woe is me. The Hebrew prophet, for the Hebrew prophet, woe was the word of judgment. 
Woe to Assyria for your atrocities. God will judge you. Woe to Babylon. You're coming down. Isaiah is saying, woe to me. I'm a dead man. This is what happens in the presence of God because sinful people can't stand in the presence of God. Not even sinless creatures like the seraphim can bear to gaze upon the glory of God. And yet, what does Jude say? In Jesus Christ, we are able to be presented in the presence of God's glory, not with great fear, but what does he say? With great joy. So here's the deal. God is able to make everything work out in the end. God is able to guarantee that when the runtime of your life is over, no matter what you're going through and what you'll have gone through, you'll be standing on your own two feet. You won't fall in the presence of the one who made you and loves you and all your problems will be a distant memory and you'll be filled with great joy. He should have said spoiler alert, but this is how the story is going to end. And I was at a birthday party or a bar. I forget what it was. It was some kind of gathering a few years ago. It was right after we started Zoe, right around the time we started it. And I had been a pastor at Lighthouse for a little while, but this was really like the first time I'm like doing ministry kind of uh, without training wheels, so to speak. And I was talking to one of my friend's dads, okay? And he was very interested that I would want to be a pastor. So he was asking me a lot of questions like, how did I get into this? Why would I want to do it? Um, and then he was kind of sharing about how burdened, he was a Christian, he was sharing about how burdened he was, kind of about how society was going, how he felt the church was going, how he felt like the younger generation. And I was in my 20s then, um, I was, I'm a millennial. He's saying millennials, he feels like they're just falling away. He doesn't even know if they can believe in God. Um, <clears throat> he, was la- uh, he specifically asked me, he said, do you even think millennials can be Christian? And I said, I hope at least one can, because I'm a millennial. But I got what he was saying, okay? He understood. That's why he was so interested in talking to me, because I was a millennial pastor. But he felt like the generation was just godless. They didn't believe. They had been uh, led astray in so many different ways. They were so worldly, all these different things. I don't know if you've had this thought at all, but with the way the culture is still changing, with all the stumbling blocks before the younger generations, with what's on the internet, with what's being taught, how society as a whole is is going through a lot of changes, with denominations dying and churches bleeding attendance and so many high-profile church leaders showing themselves as hypocrites and frauds, you might wonder if Christianity has a hope in a future. I mean, Jude was even talking about it way back in the first century. People had crept in. They were hidden reefs that were going to shipwreck people's faith. There were wolves that had infiltrated the sheep pen. God reminds us that these challenges, or Jude reminds us, excuse me, that these challenges, as big as they are, can be handled by God. And Jude reminds us that God has got it. The same God who was able to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. The same God who has preserved his church from the first century until now. He is able. And he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he shall keep you and present you Christian. And maybe even some millennials might be saved. The ending is assured. It's a happy one. Jude points us to God's ability there are a lot of challenges. We've got to be real about that. But God is able. Second point. Second point. Jude points us to his awesomeness. 
And I mean that quite literally. The awe we should have when we gaze upon God. And this should give us a sense of purpose. At least remind us of what our purpose is. Verse 25, he says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. There is only one God. We're going to talk about this actually a little bit more next week, so I'll save it. But there is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a little bit more theology. I don't know. I just was in a theological mood. The Bible teaches that God is both three and one. Okay, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one in essence, meaning there is only one being that is God, but God is also three distinct but related persons. So here's how you have to think about it. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God in of themselves. It's not that there are three gods. That's not right. It's not that each person is one third God. That's also not right. It's three persons, one essence. There is God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, as we sang a little while earlier. The church fathers understood there was a tension here, but this tension comes from how the scriptures speak of God. And this tension really makes sense. God is transcendent. He is above our understanding. He is beyond us. The Trinity, the doctrine of who God is, it boggles our mind, but it should, if God is really transcendent, it should transcend us. Now, the fact that this is so difficult and that there is a tension here sometimes makes it practically hard for us to know even what to think when we read a verse like Jude 25. Okay, when I think about the only God, when I think about uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, what am I even supposed to look at? It's like when you're looking at something for the first time, some new information, maybe at a new job, and you're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. It's like when I first went to seminary and they gave me a Hebrew Bible and I opened it up and I was like, I have no idea what this is at all. I couldn't even read a single letter. What are we supposed to think? It's so abstract sometimes. But Jude helps us out in Jude 25. It's the way that he constructs the sentence. And he helps us out through what's called revelation, lowercase r, what he reveals. See, God reveals himself through creation, right? The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. He reveals himself through the scriptures, right? God uh, inspired the scriptures. They are God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. And most personal of all, he reveals himself through his son. And that's where Jude goes. So while the father adopts us into his family and while the spirit indwells us as if we were each a little temple, it's Jesus Christ who is the mediator. If you look at the text again, he says, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took on humanity. He told Thomas, doubting Thomas, to reach out his hand to feel the scars in his hands. No one has ever seen God, John 1 says, but Jesus has made him known. So when we think about God, when we're trying to pinpoint something to latch onto, something more concrete, it's Jesus Christ. It's the person of Jesus. And that's what Jude does. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude focuses not on God, the idea, but the person of Jesus. And he lists out four things to ascribe to him. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory refers to his weightiness. Okay, the importance. Dominion, excuse me, majesty refers to his kingly status. Dominion, his control over everything. And authority, his intrinsic right to rule all that he created. God in Jesus Christ already possesses all these things. 
He is glorious and in control and has all dominion and authority. He had it before anything was created. He'll always have it. God is infinite. He is able to do whatever he wants. He is beyond us. He is transcendent. And yet, what are we called to do? Give him glory. Give him dominion and majesty and authority. How does this work? Well, it's kind of like a telescope, okay? And I got this illustration, I think, from John Piper. But he once said, you know, when we say give God glory, a lot of times we're thinking about it the wrong way. We think about it as if God has a little bit of glory and we need to give him more. Almost like a microscope. Like God is really small, but we need to blow him up in size for everyone to see. But he said, no, that's not really it. More, It's more like a telescope than a microscope. God is glorious. He is out there. The only problem is that we're far away. We're far away because our understanding isn't that good. We're far away because of our sin. A telescope helps us to see things that are far away more as if or more how they really are. That's what we do when we give glory to God. We're recognizing who he is. It's not that we're giving him anything he doesn't have. What we're doing is we're seeing things more clearly and more accurately, and we're acknowledging it. When we give glory to God, that's what we're doing. We're seeing him. We're acknowledging him. We're not adding anything to him. We're participating in who he already is. And that's what Jude is pointing us to. Now, think about it like this. I, I, um, when I think about glory, I don't know what you guys think about maybe like a bright light Or maybe you think about, I don't know, the Hebrew mind, they would go to like weightiness or heaviness. It was a very like sober, somber thing, glory. I think most of us, though, we think about winning. Think about champions. We think about movies with the title glory. And I remember when I was a second year at UCLA, um, our basketball team went to the final four, which is pretty good. I I wish they won the whole thing. They didn't. Um, But we hadn't had much success uh, for a long time. And UCLA is traditionally a very big basketball school, but it had been a dry couple of decades. Um, but we had a really good team, a young team. In the second round of the NCAA tournament, we were playing the best team in our bracket, which was Gonzaga. And they had the best player in all of college basketball, this guy named Adam Morrison. He had this mustache. So we weren't really that hopeful. We weren't sure what was going to happen. We thought maybe we could win, but there was no guarantee. And I remember everyone on campus was watching it. We were at like an apartment of some people we knew and it was like packed out. We're all watching the game and it went down to the wire. And at the very end of the game, someone stole the ball. Someone from UCLA stole the ball from Gonzaga and we scored at the very end and we won. Okay, we won. Okay, obviously I didn't play. You might've thought I did, um, but I did not play. And what I remember even beyond the screen and the basket, I can still see it in my mind. What I remember even more than that is literally everyone in Westwood going nuts. In every apartment, every dorm room, every, like, in the student union, every student was cheering and yelling. It was amazing. People were going crazy. People are hugging each other. Why? Because we won. Now, again, I say we, and most of us didn't play, but we had the same school name on our shirts as they had on their jerseys. We were invested and though it was their victory that brought the glory, when we watched, when we cheered and hugged and jumped up and down, we were able to participate in that. The victory wasn't just theirs, even though they won it. The victory was all of ours. See, we have to understand something. God himself is glorious. Even if he did nothing, he would be infinitely glorious. And he has done 
much even on top of that. The gospel is a story of God's glorious work. It's a story of a king who sacrifices himself for the kingdom. I mean, all great stories are like this. It's about a king who snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. It's about a hero that actually kills death itself. That is what the gospel story is. And Christian, when you become a Christian, we're called to participate in that. We're allowed, we're invited to participate in that. The victory was won by Christ, but we get to be a part of it. Christianity is not a religion of losing, but of winning. Just don't get it twisted. It's a religion of winning, but it's not about us. It's just about us participating in what he's done. So here's an application for you. Remember what this is all about. That's where Jude is going. He says, uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Just reorient your perspective. Stop a minute and think about it. Just look up. It's not about us. The church, our lives, every breath we take is to give him glory. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And practically speaking, it just means do it so that God looks good. It's not about you. Do it to show off God, not about us. Glorify him in what you do. Be obedient. Glorify him directly through singing about his greatness. And we have an opportunity every week to directly praise God. I remember one time I was at church and uh, I think I was at choir practice. There was a youth choir at our church growing up and my parents made me do it. Um, and uh, I remember I showed up and I really didn't want to do it for some reason, you know, <laughs> uh, I know you're surprised. Um, but I remember I was just standing up there on the stage and I didn't sing at all. Right? I didn't want to be there. And then I remember someone rebuked me. I was like a teenager, you know, and he said, Hey, if you don't want to sing, don't even come. And I said, exactly. Right? I don't even want to be here, but I never forgot what he said. You know, he was saying like, if you're going to be here and you're going to be about this, you know, and it made me think about it. I'm not saying be a hypocrite and pretend. But for some of us, I think we need to hear something like that. Not to be too harsh. But if we're going to be here and sit here for an hour, an hour and a half, or we're going to stand up, if we're going to have the words on the screen for us, someone's going to play, it's not the time to zone out and think about something else. You know what I mean? All creation was created for God's glory. And though the world is fallen, creation still sings. It's as the old hymn goes, this is my father's world. The birds, their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white declare their maker's praise. See, creation, okay, gives God glory just by existing. The sun shines and it gives God glory. The birds sing and it glorifies their maker. But we are called to do more than just exist. We're called to submit ourselves to him to give ourselves to him, to decrease so that Christ can increase, make every moment small and big about him and not you, stand in awe of who he is, and then move in accordance with that. Now, we need to move to the end of this text. We are to look to his ability, his awesomeness, lastly, his agelessness. This is just about time. Verse 24 again, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude ends with time. Before all time, now and forever. Eternity past to eternity future. What's happening right now is a drop in the bucket. Our lives here on earth, it's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. We're a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. We need to live in light of the fact that there is eternity. That there is time far beyond what we comprehend. On the one hand, just thinking about this can be very convicting. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some of us, our hearts, right, our treasure, it's in this thing that is passing away. Things that don't last. And when I say this thing, I mean just our lives, which are so short. A lot of us approach our lives as if this is all there is and that this will last. We're so distracted day by day by daily tasks. We're so focused on short-term goals. We forget how certain things look a lot more important when they're put against eternity. I mean, okay, just to make it more practical, it's not wrong to want to remodel your house. I might want to do that someday. Just understand that it's not that different than wanting to remodel your room in the Titanic. You know what I mean? Like it's going down. We need to be reminded of eternity. It's convicting, but it's also comforting. It's comforting. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jude knows that he dropped a lot of hard stuff on his readers. He was very real about certain things. He talked about judgment so much. He talked about corrupt people in the church, false teaching. A lot of us have very real struggles too that we're bringing to the table and problems and issues. But when we think about eternity, when we think about the great forever, whatever we're going through now will soon be over. And Jude draws our eyes to then. You know, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, uh, I would say it's a little uneven to put it mildly, but I love the description of how all things end. And this is how we should think of life and time. Let me read to you, quote, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. See, the truth is... All of our lives, if we live a hundred years, all of our lives are just the cover and the title page. Eternity is where the story really begins. And friend, there are only two places to go when it comes to eternity. Jude has made that abundantly clear for the false teachers who prey upon impressionable people in the church, who take advantage of others. 
there is eternal judgment. But for those who are being saved, there is an eternity of glory in his presence where every chapter is better than the one before. Do you know where you're heading? This could either be the most encouraging ending to the letter or the scariest. And notice, lastly, Jude ends with a single word, amen. Not goodbye, not peace, but amen. Do you know what amen means? Amen literally means, so be it. Okay, it basically means, I agree. So when someone is praying for everybody, and then everyone says, amen, what we're saying is, I agree. And some of us were like, oh man, I said amen way too many times without even knowing what that guy said. But that's what it means, amen. Jude ends his letter with a doxology, and he ends his doxology with an amen. And the question is, do we say amen? Do we say amen? This is how you'll know where you're headed. Do you say amen to Jesus Christ being the only one who is able to present us blameless? Do you say amen to the call to ascribe him glory, majesty, dominion, and authority? Do you say amen to recognizing the fact that it's all about him? Is your life an amen to these truths? Is your life an amen to the power and glory of God forever? Friend, I would urge you to consider above everything else, Jesus Christ. And do you agree with who he is and what he's done? What do you think? And this leads us back to where we started. And we're going to end a little bit earlier, maybe. Still not done. Turn with me to Acts 1. Acts chapter 1. You know, someday we're going to do this book. Acts chapter 1. Fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then Acts Remember, Jude saw Jesus. He took in the crowds who came to hear him teach. He even witnessed miracles. And yet he didn't believe even up to the cross. Seeing, he still did not see. He did not perceive. Now, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books before Acts, they all end with the glorious truth that is the linchpin of Christianity. Jesus Christ, even though he went to the cross and died, did not stay in the grave, but he rose again, and he is alive. And Acts picks up where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John end. Now look at verse 3. He, that he being Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they waited. And the question is, who waited? Look at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who? And his brothers. His brothers. Now we don't get all the details, but sometime during those 40 days, something changed. For now, who is there waiting and praying and believing? Mary and also her other sons, Jesus' brothers. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James. And James became a leader in the church, a pillar of the faith. He wrote the book of James. 
But it wasn't just James who was changed. Jude saw Jesus. He took in the miracles who came to hear him teach. Uh, he took in the crowds who came to hear him teach. He even witnessed miracles. And yet he didn't believe even up to the cross. And yet, somewhere in those 40 days, something changed. Even though seeing he did not see, he did not perceive. Even though he was lost, somewhere in those 40 days, Jesus found him. Jesus finds the lost. He makes the blind see. That's what he did with his little brother. And so hear the words of Jude 1. This is what Jude said at the beginning of the letter we started a few months ago. He says, Jude, or Judas, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jesus can and he will keep you. If we keep our eyes on him, Christian, beloved, we cannot fail and we cannot fall. That's what Jude is saying. Contend, but know that the victory depends not on our effort. It doesn't depend on you or on me, thank God. It's all on him. So look to him, gaze upon the beauty of his glory, be transfixed and be transformed. And not only will Jesus win, but we'll be able to participate in it now and forever. Amen.